This morning, we're going to be in Luke 22. The outline's on the back of your bulletin if you want to follow along. I want to begin just by sharing a few quotes I found about failure uh, from Forbes.com. Our lesson is about failure is not final, but listen to a couple of these quotes. John Wooden says, failure isn't fatal, but failure to change might be. Gina Showalter says, giving up is the only sure way to fail. Dennis Waitley says, failure should be our teacher, not our undertaker. Failure is delay, not defeat. It's a temporary detour, not a dead end. Failure is something we can avoid only by saying nothing, doing nothing, and being nothing. You might have heard of this quote. Thomas Edison is quoted as saying, I have not failed, I've just found 10,000 ways that won't work. Henry Ford says the only real mistake is the one from which we learn nothing. C.S. Lewis says failures are finger posts on the road to achievement. Good old Johnny Cash says you build on failure. You use it as a stepping stone. Close the door on the past. You don't try to forget your mistakes, but you don't dwell on it. You don't let it have any of your energy, any of your time, or any of your space. Zig Ziglar said it's not how far you fall, but how high you bounce that counts. Winston Churchill said success is not final. Failure is not fatal. It is the courage to continue that counts. We're going to look at, a, at the Apostle Peter this morning for the next few moments. And if we remember anything about the Apostle Peter, we remember his failures, don't we? We remember the times he blew it, the times where he messed up in life. And you know, the Bible doesn't sugarcoat the failure of people from the Old Testament to the New Testament. The successes and the failures are there and in plain sight. We're going to be in Luke chapter 22. The verses are going to be on the screen, but you might want to open your Bible and you can follow along as well. And we're going to see that failure need not be necessarily final with God as well. In chapter 2, the context here, Jesus has gathered with his disciples in the upper room for the Last Supper. And in that uh, special moment, he, he reveals to them that one of them is going to betray him. And that breaks out into discussion, which one of them is the greatest? That, that arguing, that bickering, that competitive spirit is still just blinding them to what's going on. Jesus then helps them to understand the upside-down way of the kingdom. And then in Luke 22, verse 31, let's pick up the text there. Simon, Jesus says, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. But I've prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times that you know me. Now, just to begin with, I want to notice two truths from the passage. The first is that Satan is our adversary. You know this already, but it's good for us to be reminded. He's, he's out to take us out of the game. That's his plan. He wants to sift us. Simon, Simon Peter, uh, Jesus said, Satan is asked to sift you as wheat. And we understand that sift is an agricultural term. It's a way to separate what is good from bad. You would throw it up in the air. The bad would blow away. You put it in the box with a net on the bottom. And so the, only what is good remains. But to do that, you're going to be tossed around. You're going to be shaken vigorously. It's not necessarily going to be an easy process. And Satan is out to turn us upside down. And maybe even shake us to pieces. To see what we're made of. To see what we really believe. 
1 Peter 5, 8, the Bible says, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a lion, a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. In Revelation 12, verse 10, we're told that Satan accuses believers day and night. We know that. We've experienced that. Behind every spiritual failure is a spiritual enemy. I find it very interesting in this text that Jesus allowed the adversary to attack the follower. You know, why didn't Jesus just make Satan buzz off and, and, and leave Peter alone and all of them alone? Why didn't he put a hedge of protection and keep this from happening? Well, here's my answer to that. I think Jesus knew that Peter and everyone, but especially Peter in this context, would ultimately benefit from this failure. If I could say it in this way, it'd be good for him to go through this. He's got Satan. God's got Satan on a short leash. And he can go no further than God allows. And that's the second point I want us to notice here. Jesus is our advocate. Satan is our adversary, but Jesus is our advocate. I love the fact that Jesus intercedes for us. Notice what he says there. I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. While Satan goes after everyone, he seems to have his bullseye on leaders. And obviously Jesus saw this in Peter and all the apostles, but especially Peter. You take out the leader, you're going to take about so many. It's like taking out that bowling pin in the front. No bigger, no different than all the other pins, but the position. You take that leader out and it affects so many more. I want you to notice here that Jesus tells Simon that he's praying for him. Shouldn't that give us comfort? That Jesus is pulling for you? That he's rooting for you? That he's on your side? That he wants you to succeed? So many people do not have that impression of God. Do not have that view of God. That is a lie from Satan. And he's, he's persuaded so many. Hebrews 7.25. The writer of Hebrews says, Therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, because Jesus always lives to intercede for them. See, Jesus knows that Peter will stumble. He knows that. But he also knows that his unfaithfulness will only be temporary, that he's not going to fail forever. What I want to see in our lesson this morning is, is a three-step process that's going on here. The rebellion, the repentance, and the restoration. The rebellion, Jesus is, is telling Peter up front, you will turn away before the rooster crows three times. It's going to happen. Today, it's going to happen. And then secondly, the repentance. He told Peter, he's going to turn, when you turn back. I wonder if Peter remembered that word, when. When you turn back. And then third is the restoration. When you do come back, when you do turn back, you're going to strengthen the brothers. I'm going to use you to be an encouragement to others. So for our study today, let's just kind of look at these three points. If you're following along, the first one is the rebellion. While Peter's denial of Christ was a huge spiritual blowout, what we know of Peter is in some ways, we could see it coming. Even if Jesus had not shared this with Peter, even if this wasn't recorded in Scripture, some of us, what we know of Peter already could have said, yeah, I'm not surprised that he did this. Here's a, here's a couple of weaknesses you might say that we all know about Peter. The first one is this, Peter was proud. Peter was proud. The disciples had just been arguing about who was the greatest. And Peter obviously was right in there with them. Look on the screen. I put several things about in Scripture over and over again. His, 
his pride, his arrogance, his I'll never, I always. Peter was so full of these strong statements. Like John 13, 37. He said he laid down his life for Christ. And in Luke 22, our text here in verse 33, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. And in Matthew 26, where he says, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. He thought he was more committed than all the others. Do you smell, do you sense the pride there in these statements? Even a step further, in Mark 14, 31, he contradicted the Lord when he predicted Jesus' denial. Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. Now, the reality is we can all detect pride in other people, but rarely in ourselves. Peter had a pride problem. That's why I need to think about 1 Corinthians 10, 12. So if you think you're standing, be careful that you don't fall. Well, here's something else we know about Peter. Peter was prayerless. Obviously, that wasn't a strength for him. But then again, who hasn't been guilty of jumping into something without praying? A need arises. A problem comes to your attention. You just jump in without even thinking of inviting God into the situation. How many of you have gone through a day, maybe even days, and you've not stopped to think to pray? I think we've all been guilty of that. In Luke 22, verse 45... We see that Peter fell asleep instead of doing battle in prayer. And in verse 46, Jesus tells them that prayer can keep them from temptation. He says, get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. Without prayer, and we know this, without prayer, there's no power to fight. Well, number three, Peter was impetuous. Maybe this is what we know Peter of uh, for the most. His being just so quick to jump, quick to speak, quick to act. He was so impetuous. Similar to what, how Greg Kershaw describes Samson, emotion-driven, not spirit-led. I think a clear evidence of this is found in John 18. Do you remember the incident where Peter just quickly reaches out and cuts off the servant's ear? Not thinking, just doing. That's just impetuous, just, just doing what he thought needed to be done. And then, of course, he ran off in fear. And then number four, Peter was predisposed. P- predisposed. You know, sometimes the biggest talkers... The biggest talkers are also known to be the ones who don't always follow through. They have all the right answers, but sometimes they get it wrong. But they're quick to give you their answers. They're quick to talk. Peter seemed to be all in, but I think there was something that was holding him back, something he wasn't quite there, more of a fan than a follower. In Luke 22, later on in this chapter, it says that after they seized Jesus, that Peter followed from a distance. It says so much. He followed from a distance. I'm not sure if predisposed is a word. I kind of struggle with that one. Maybe it fits. Maybe there's a better word for it. But I wonder if the others, the other 11, were surprised at Peter's actions. I wonder if they could have saw it coming. I wonder if those who knew him best knew that it was only a matter of time until Peter blew it. Turn your Bibles over if you want to to Matthew's account, Matthew 26. The verses are going to be on the screen, but I want you to see how Peter went through this process of these denials. I'm calling denial one, denial two, denial three, just kind of walking through. Looking first in Matthew 26, verse 69 and following. Now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard, and the servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said. Denial number one. But he denied it before them all. I do not know what you're talking about. 
It's hard to believe this is the same guy that just cut off the servant's ear just a bit earlier. Denial number two, Matthew 26, beginning verse 71. Then he went out, gate, out, of the, out to the gateway where another servant girl saw him and said to the people there, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. So Peter gets up. He goes to the door. He calls out an oath. He doesn't even mention Jesus by name. He says, the man. Obviously trying to distance himself from Jesus. And denial, denial number three. Luke's gospel tells us it's about an hour later. But in Matthew 26, verse 73, after a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, surely you're one of them. Your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses and he swore to them, I don't know the man. Now as you read into that last verse, 74, he began to call down curses and swore to them. Don't think in your mind that he started using four-letter words or expletives to kind of give some oomph to his statement. That's not what's happening here. In fact, sometimes I think our, our verses, our translations get this wrong. To call down curses is to invite God to curse you if what you're saying is not true. The King James Bible renders it like this. He began to curse and to swear, saying, I know not this man of whom you speak. It's close. But the English Standard Version, I put it on the screen there, I believe it's the most accurate here. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. See, Satan is sifting Peter at this time, and his failure was exposed. But it wasn't final for him. So let's look then at the next step, the steps of repentance. And a couple of things with this. The first is conscience. His conscience started working. Peter, just talking, hears that rooster crowing. The Bible kind of gives the idea immediately, verse 26, uh, chapter 26, verse 75, immediately the rooster crowed. Could it even been as Peter was speaking? Then Peter, remember the word Jesus had spoken before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times, and went outside and wept bitterly. He remembered what Jesus said. It wasn't that long ago. It's not like he told him that three years ago. It's just a few moments ago in reality. But let me just say it's good when we feel bad. It can be good to feel bad. Read through some of the psalms and, and you, you, you get that sentiment. Some of the songs we sing express that. And we understand the wisdom there. Our conscience is a gift from God. And He can use our guilt to bring us back to him. And we're not supposed to stay in our guilt. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what the Bible says. But guilt can be a good thing. Feeling bad can be a good thing if it draws you back to he who is good. And that's point number two, the look of love. At the point of Peter's denial, Jesus fixes his gracious gaze on Peter. If you remember the movie, The Passion, it so well depicted that moment. And Peter says the words, and then Jesus looks at him. It's an eye-to-eye interchange. No words need be said. Jesus communicated. Peter understood. Luke 22, verse 61 says, The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. The Lord's face covered in spit, blood, bruises. Peter sees pain. Peter sees forgiveness. Peter knows he's loved, and it broke his heart. 
Romans 2.4 reminds us that when we consider God's goodness, God's kindness, that convicts us, that motivates us, that teaches us as much as anything. God is a good God, and He's a kind God. Look what He says, Romans 2.4. Or do you show contempt for the riches of His kindness, forbearance, and patience? Not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? God is kind. God is good. And that look that Jesus gave to Peter was to pull him back. It's to let him know there's still hope. There's still a chance. I'm on your side. Remember the words of the song, Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full into His wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. When you look into the face of your Lord, what you're supposed to see is His glory and grace. Not His condemnation. That's what Peter saw. And that brought about the third, the sorrowful brokenness. This calls Peter, he was overwhelmed. He knew he was guilty. He knew he had done exactly what Jesus predicted and what he said he wouldn't do. And he was so broken with that Matthew says he went out and wept bitterly. Mark 14, 72 indicates that Peter broke down and wept. I did. He just wailed violently. You cried like that. We're not talking about wiping tears. We're talking about it is just full force weeping. That's what's happening here. 2 Corinthians 7, 10 says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. See, the path to restoration requires repentance. But we don't talk about that as much as we should because it's for sure in Scripture. But I wonder if you've ever felt a little bit like Peter where you blew it. Maybe you didn't speak up. Maybe you said the wrong thing. Maybe you failed and feel like you can't be forgiven. Maybe you've made a mess of your marriage. Maybe your relationship with a close friend has been fractured. Maybe you've been fired from a job or your business is a bust. Or maybe your kids didn't turn out quite the way you thought they would. Maybe there's a slow leak going on. You need to go from rebellion to repentance so you can be restored. I love the truth found in Proverbs twenty four sixteen. For though the righteous fall seven times, they rise again. So let's quickly talk about his restoration. This is the good part. After Jesus is put to death, the disciples are afraid. They go into hiding. They don't know what to do. What does this mean? But you know the rest of the story. After three days, Jesus comes back from the grave and starts appearing to people. I love what the angel said to the women who came to the empty tomb in Mark 16, verse 7. But go tell his disciples and Peter. He's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. God wanted the disciples to know, but especially wanted Peter by name. He's called out. Go tell the disciples and Peter that Jesus is now alive. This customized message was so needed for Peter, who was no doubt, like the others, but maybe even more so feeling like an amazing failure. So I want to close by the last couple of minutes looking at John 21, where Jesus has this conversation Restoring Peter. Peter didn't know what to do. What's right? What's wrong? What's my future? 
So like a lot of us, he goes back to what he's used to. He goes back to fishing. They go back to fishing, but you know the story. They fish all night, don't catch anything. So he's a failure following Jesus. He goes back to what he's good at. He's, a fresh, he's failing at that too. There's a lesson running of itself. They see a man walking on the shore. As how's the fishing? Not so good. The man on the shore says, try the other side. Do you remember the story? They get so much, the boat's just overflowing. They realize it's their Lord. Good old impetuous Peter jumps in the water, wants to go be right there with him. After having breakfast on the beach, Jesus restores Peter to ministry. One of the riots are a lot of things that Jesus could have said to Peter. He could have responded the way we respond. Could have treated him with silence, given him the cold shoulder. Maybe expressed his anger and let Peter suffer, watch him squirm. He said, you know, Peter, I just don't know if I can trust you anymore. He could have kept bringing up his failure at every conversation. Or maybe talked about it to the other side. You know how Peter did it. You know, don't be like Peter. He could have excluded him, found subtle ways to punish him. And if the Lord ran out of ideas, he could ask us and we could give him even more. Because we're good at that, aren't we? We're pretty tough on people who fail. But then we want them to really be kind to us when it's our turn. There's so much we can learn from John 21. But very quickly, I want to see three things here. Number one, John 21, verse 15 and following, love lavishly. Jesus tells him to love lavishly. After breakfast is over, Jesus publicly forgives Peter with the disciples there as an audience, because they all needed this. We need it. But it was good for Peter to be forgiven publicly because everybody knew it. I wonder for Peter smelling the charcoal, feeling the warmth of the fire at breakfast, that that smell, that sensation would take him back to that moment of betrayal, warming himself by the fire when he went through those three denials I think Peter had to be taken aback when Jesus referred to him as Simon son of John and not calling him Peter that was a step backwards verse 15 it says when they had finished eating Jesus said to Simon Peter Simon son of John doesn't call him Peter Simon son of John I'm sure Peter was looking for him to be called Peter he'd run a rock something firm a foundation but Jesus didn't call him that Because, you know, Peter hadn't been acting much like a rock lately. Jesus then asked Peter the question, do you love me more than these? What was he talking about? Was he talking about the fish on the fire? Was he talking about the, the, the fishing equipment, the boat, the supplies, his former way of life? Do you love me more than, than where you came from? Because I noticed you went back to the... Is that what he's asking? Was he saying, do you love me more than these other disciples, these other people? Or was Jesus wanting Peter to admit that his pride was now gone? Peter could no longer argue that he was better than anybody else, better than any of the other 11. Instead of bragging, he was broken. And that's a good place to be. And we all need to be there from time to time. Psalm 51, verse 17 says, My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, God, you will not despise. Jesus could have asked Peter anything. He could have used that as a moment to teach. 
He could have made an object lesson, maybe told a parable. But you know what Jesus does here? Notice this. He uses this opportunity to talk about the relationship. Because that's what was needed. Peter was wondering, where do we stand? Where do we go from here? What's next? Twice more he asked Peter if he loved him. Then in verse 17, the third time he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And through these questions, this repetition of the same question, really, Jesus is acknowledging Peter's penitence. But you also get the sense that there is awkwardness here. Maybe capital A, awkward, underline. I mean, what do you say at a time like this? How do you move forward when you've blown it so big time? What is the appropriate response for Peter? What does he say? But I want you to notice with each of Peter's replies, Jesus gives him a task to do. And that's number two, serve selflessly. The Lord's not looking at his past. He knows his past. He was there. He witnessed it. He's looking to his future, what Peter can do for the kingdom in the future. And one way Peter is to demonstrate his devotion to his Lord, his commitment to his Lord, is by serving his fellow man, his brothers, God's people. The main point here is our love for God will always be shown in the way that we love other people. It's the first and second command together. You can't separate them. And Peter is told, if you love me, feed my sheep. One author said this, don't let what you did keep you from doing what God wants you to do. You are not what you did. You are who God made you to be. Jesus wanted Peter to know that there was still an assignment for him. And that's number three. Jesus wanted Peter to follow faithfully. Follow him no matter what. We are to follow him no matter what's going on. That command, follow me, is in present imperative. means keep on following me. No matter who else. Because you remember this story, they're wondering about John. And again, the comparing comes in. That was going on the upper, it's been going on for three years of ministry. Who's the greatest? And then Jesus talking about his death, they're still and it's comparing here. What about John? You do that and I do that. Don't we? Well, if I know how much you're giving to something, that'll help me to know how much I need to give. You ever feel that way? You ever think that way? What's everybody else doing? If they're doing that, then I'll gauge what I'm going to do based on what everybody else is doing. We're just like Peter. Playing the compare game. He's having this one-on-one with our Lord that is an amazing moment of, of, of restoration. And Peter's reverting back to this comparing. What about him? John 21, 21. I love the answer that Jesus gave, verse 22. If I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. What is that to you? So much we can learn just from that brief but powerful conversation. Let me close with two things we can learn from Peter. Number one, failure does not need to be final. It doesn't have to be final. Peter messed up by failing big time, and he felt awful, and he could have just given up. Judas did. We know that. But Peter didn't. He moved from rebellion to repentance to restoration. You are not a failure because you failed. 
That is not your identity. That is not your future. At least it doesn't have to be. We need to remember that. And then number two, as bad and as painful as failure is, failure can be fruitful. Failure can be good for us. If you were to study the life of Peter, you would discover that this failure, in a way, had a very positive effect on Peter. He was a changed person before his big blowout here. He was brash, he was impulsive, he was reckless, he was abrupt. But after repenting and being restored, you see a different Peter emerging, a changed man. He's more tender-hearted, he's more compassionate, he's more humbled by his obvious failure. And he became one of the leaders in the early church. Not perfect, but oh so changed because of this experience. When you fail, you can strengthen others because you know you know what it's like. You know how easy it is to fail. Many years ago, I took a group of teenagers snow skiing. Most of us had never skied before. We were so thankful that they had this mandatory uh, ski school. You ever been skiing? You know that. You know, make you a couple of hours, and you're on the bunny slope. And the bunny slope is just as it sounds. It's soft and safe and somewhat level. And it's a good place to start. But I remember even there noticing these little kids... Like early, not the youth group kids, but like early elementary preschool kids, they were almost made out of rubber. They would like fall and just kind of bounce right back up. And then fall over and they'd bounce right back up. And I think, how did they do that? Because when we would fall, great would be the fall thereof. One ski would go this way, one ski would go that way, bruised hip, bruised ego, everybody sees you. Failure happens. It's happened to you. It's happened to every one of us. And because of that, then you are equipped. You are experienced. You are qualified to be the first to reach out to the other one who's fallen over just like you did. Or maybe it's not just like you did. Maybe they fell in a different way. And we have a hard time forgiving those who sin differently than us. But there's a challenge to love like our Lord. So many applications here. God knows you're going to fail. He knows. You could take this passage and put your own name in there. You're going to fail. The Lord knows that. But it's like learning to walk. You've got to get back up. You've got to get back up. And the Lord's going to be the first, just like Peter in the water, to pull us up. I suspect that some of you have fallen but you're not sure about getting back up. You're not sure about what does this mean. You're embarrassed by your failure. You think everybody else has got their act together. I'm telling you, look around. We are a bunch of fallen sinners, but we have a Savior who's washed us clean. That's the good news that we need to always stay on and never forget and remind each other of that. And when one of us gets like Peter and a little full of pride, let's help each other out and say, let's watch out that we not fall. The Lord wants to be the first to accept you and forgive you and give you the forgiveness through Jesus, through His blood. That's why He died on the cross. And we, as His people, will be right on His heels saying, I was there too. You're my brother. Now you're my sister. And we're going to love you. If you need the redeeming grace of our Lord, if you're ready to have your sins washed away in baptism, we're going to sing this song to encourage you. 
or if there's some sin that maybe you need us to, to pray for you, we'll do that. We'll surround you with love. And just like our Lord, be so eager to forgive. Won't you come as we stand and sing to encourage you?